Let's read the text together this morning. Beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards there to protect the tomb shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, <clears throat> as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the women went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Father, Lord, we ask this morning that as we look at the significance of the event, we've gathered to recognize your resurrection, the reality that you are not dead, but you are alive, that you conquered sin, hell, and the grave. And Lord, as we look at that event and discuss the implications that that has for us, Lord, we ask that you personally would meet with us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we look at your written word, speak into our lives a word of power. In Jesus' name, amen. Easter tends to be kind of the most unique of all 52 Sundays. And it's unique because of an interesting and strange similarity found in a rather diverse crowd. You know, Easter, it's a crowd that's made up of regulars who haven't gone away on spring break, those who kind of attend, but it's Easter, so they'll be here, and a collection of first-timers that were kind of invited and tagged along and are here because they know either a family member or a friend who attends. So it's a diverse crowd. It's a unique crowd. It's a different crowd, but it's, but it's weird because we all share something, no matter what our background is, in common with each other. According to research conducted by the Barna Group, among non-church-going American adults, only 46% view the meaning of Easter as being religious. And while this number really isn't all that surprising, things become weird when you add churchgoers to the mix. According to Barna, when they polled non-specified Americans, the number of those who view the meaning of Easter as being religious actually declines four points to 42%. Did you catch the difference there? If they polled Non-church-going Americans, of those polled, 46% are like, yeah, Easter is religious. If they add Christians to the mix, the number goes down, which is weird because you would think it would go up. Barna concludes 
that while a majority of Americans indicated some type of spiritual connection with Easter, research showed that a minority of adults linked Easter to the Christian belief and the resurrection of Christ. I mean, it is hard to reconcile a creepy bunny who hides eggs from children with religion. A study released last April by Rathmussen Reports polling firm may provide an explanation for why this ends up being the case. Of those polled, only 64% of Americans believe Jesus rose from the dead. What makes this number alarming is that the same poll conducted two years before in 2012 had the number at 77%. In just two years, we have seen in America a decline of 13 points and the number of adults who believe and the resurrection of Jesus. And if that wasn't shocking in and of itself, the same Rasmussen report found that nearly one in five professing American Christians, 19%, not only reject the resurrection as a fact of history, but also reject resurrection as being a central tenet of the Christian faith. That number in two years has declined 12 percentage points. Like it's, it's risen 12 percentage points. In 2012, it was 7%. Now it's 19. It would seem a significant portion of your typical Easter congregation is actually made up of people that are skeptical the very event we've gathered on Easter to celebrate ever even took place, the resurrection of Jesus. And it's with that in mind, I need to say something unequivocally, something that might be strong, something that at starters you might be a little recoiled with. If you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. You might be a lot of things, and you might be a good person. I'm not doubting all that, but, but I can say this with certainty that if you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. Every single major Christian creed in the last 2,000 years has affirmed the resurrection of Jesus as being an essential Christian belief. The original Apostles' Creed stated that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead on the third day he rose again. The Nicene Creed states that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Then on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Westminster Confession of Faith states that the Lord Jesus was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death. Yet he saw no corruption. And on the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. Even the Catechism of the Catholic Church stresses the importance of the resurrection as being essential to Christianity. The Catechism states that the resurrection of Jesus is the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, a faith believed and lived as the central truth by the first Christian community handed down as a fundamental a belief by tradition established by the documents of the New Testament and preached as an essential part of the Paschal ministry along with the Christ. Even the Catholics will affirm that you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. In 2001, 
a B movie. It was not a very good movie, but it fits my point. A movie starring Antonio Banderas, titled The Body, explored the potential ramifications discovering the actual physical body of Jesus would have for Christianity. Banderas playing the character Father Gutierrez is assigned by the Vatican to investigate an archeological discovery claiming that they've found the body of Jesus. Now, Father Gutierrez initially sets out to try to challenge, to discredit the claim, to sweep it under the rug, but as more and more and more evidence begins to mount, his faith begins to waver. There's a point where he's no longer able to suppress the truth, meaning that he comes, Father Gutierrez, to this stark realization that it's the Catholic Church he's so passionately trying to protect and not actually the Christian faith. At the end of the movie, spoiler alert, the bones aren't Jesus's, but either way, Father Gutierrez decides that he has to resign from the priesthood, concluding, and I'll quote, I thought I had lost my faith in Christ, in God, my Savior, my friend, but I didn't. I've lost my faith in serving men who use God to justify their material agendas. This is why I now choose to serve God in my own personal way. For Father Gutierrez, he reached the point of realization that whether Jesus rose or didn't, in the end, when it was all said and done, he could still be a believer. His faith in Jesus could still remain true. And yet, please understand, at best, this position, one which is shared by 19% of Christians, is intellectually inconsistent. For without the resurrection, there can be no Christian faith. Theologian and Jesuit priest, Gerald O'Collins, he said Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. Pastor John MacArthur, which Lord knows I disagree with on a lot of things, he agrees with this position, writing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It's so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. To that I say amen. The Bible says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul even affirms how vain our Christian faith would be apart from the actual resurrection of Jesus. He writes, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. The Bible tells you that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, everything else it's told you is meaningless. Though the resurrection of Jesus is essential to our Christian faith, I will concede for you that the claim, it's rather radical, right? I mean, how many people in the history of the world died and then three days later came back to life? Doesn't happen often. I mean, there's a reason that no other religion, no other moral leader has ever dared to make such an assertion as resurrection being skeptical. Being skeptical 
of the resurrection is only reasonable. It's only reasonable that you're at first skeptical. As Ravi Zacharias put it, what I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. And yet, understand, while the resurrection of Jesus might indeed be the most extreme claim of history, it is one of the most reliable. While the Bible concedes the fact that no one actually saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. Do you know that? Like no one was actually in the tomb as Jesus's dead body begins to stir and then emerge forth like a little caterpillar in his cocoon. Like no one was there. As a matter of fact, uh, it's been said that the tomb was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to let us see in. No one was there and yet there is no debate, and this is important, that following Jesus's death, something occurred that was so monumental that it changed the course of human history. First, as a fact of history, the body of Jesus has always been missing. You know, no one's ever found or presented the body of Jesus. Not only did Jesus' disciples, his followers, claim to have discovered the tomb empty, but even his most ardent enemies, his strongest critics, conceded that the body of Jesus had mysteriously vanished. It's a fact of history. And, and, and on a side note, there's no way that the disciples stole the body. They didn't have an opportunity for that. And they lacked incentive to fabricate a lie. It's one thing to fabricate a lie. It's another thing to die for it. And they all would. As a simple and undisputed fact of history, Jesus's body was never found then. It was never recovered then. And it's never been recovered since. While there have always been great incentive to find it. If the enemies of Jesus, if the Pharisees, if the religious leaders there in the first century wanted to destroy Christianity, all they had to do was present a body. Today, all that would needed to be done to destroy Christianity would be to present a body. The problem is there's no body to be found. To this point, William Lane Craig correctly reasons that if the tomb were not empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on the belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where this man had been publicly executed and publicly buried. Secondly, as a fact of history, beginning with these women in the garden and progressing down through the centuries, a massive number of people of all ethnicities, of all walks of life across the globe have claimed in the 2,000 years since to have had a personal encounter with the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus. That is evidence that can't be disputed. It's been observed that the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen. It's that he was seen alive, was seen dead, and then he was, a, then he was seen alive once more. The eyewitness evidence, the support of the resurrected Jesus is legally overwhelming. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and eight, we're told that Jesus was raised on the third day, according to scriptures, but then note, and he appeared to Cephas, that being Peter, 
Then he appeared to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now, remain alive until now. Some have died. Jesus appeared to James, which was his half-brother, appeared to all of the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, Jesus appeared to me as well. The reality is that Jesus, yes, he died, but he rose because he was seen. He encountered people. He interacted with approximately 511 eyewitnesses to the event itself we find Paul referencing here. He's writing to the Corinthians, a church far away, a group far away, a group that's thinking resurrection, resurrected from the dead. That's kind of crazy. And Paul's like, don't take my word for it. There are over 500 of us who actually talked with, interacted with, connected with Jesus after he was dead. Talk to them, get their opinion on it. Keep in mind when considering the resurrection of Jesus that Christianity didn't form in a vacuum. I mean, it's not like it started, the religion started in backroom secretive deals in the Vatican. Now, every event that fostered the development of the Christian faith took place in a public arena. Everything about Christianity took place in the open. Jesus' public, his ministry was public, right? For three years, he was publicly teaching the people. When he was crucified, he was crucified in a very public place, Golgotha. The tomb, it was a public tomb. It was registered to Joseph of Arimathea. Pontius Pilate gave permission. The enemies of Christ knew where it was because they put a guard. It was public, people knew where he was buried. It was protected by guards who worked for the public. Upon rising, Jesus presented himself publicly on at least 10 separate occasions. In his famous debate concerning the resurrection, New Testament scholar Dr. Gary Habermas closed his argument saying this. I think it sums up it well. He says, here is how I look at the evidence for the resurrection. First, did Jesus die on the cross? Second, did he later appear to people? Did he die? And after that, did people see him? If you can establish those two things, you've made your case because dead people don't normally do that. Even today, one of the most powerful evidences of the resurrection are the rational people who point to an encounter with the resurrected Jesus as being the singular reason their life has changed for the best. Think for a moment about the person who brought you to church this morning. Maybe it's a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, a friend, a neighbor. Like, think about it for a moment. How in the world do you explain the transformation that's taking place in their life? The one from sin to righteousness, apart from a supernatural encounter with the living Jesus. I mean, you knew them before, right? Before they knew Jesus, before they were a Christian, before they claimed to be a Christ follower, you knew them, you partied with them, you drank with them, you hung with them. Your interests, their interests commingled. You knew their life. 
And now you know their life and it's radically different. They do different things. Their interests are different. Something from there, from BC to now AD and that person's life, something has changed. Something had to happen to explain it. The answer is what they claim to have had happen. They met Jesus and he changed their life. English columnist A.N. Wilson wrote, my belief in the resurrection has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of, of the people I've known. Not, not people that were famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Finally, apart from all of this, it is also a fact of history that even skeptics of the resurrection have had something happen, something take place in their lives that was so palpable, so real, that it transformed them from being skeptics into staunch proponents almost overnight. Think about it. If the resurrection of Jesus did not occur, how in the world do you explain how the disciples go from pitiful, whining cowards to bold proclaimers, willing to face persecution, arrest, trial, and death in just a matter of a few days. Proclaimers that would lay down their lives because they refused to recant their belief that Jesus rose. How do you explain it? Like, don't forget, the disciples did not expect Jesus to die let alone rise from the dead three days later. In line with the current Jewish thought of the day, they were convinced as they went to Jerusalem that particular week that Jesus was going to triumphantly defeat the Romans and usher in a new kingdom. Even before Jesus was crucified, as soon as he was arrested, everyone but John bailed. They were disappointed their dreams, their aspirations, what they had hoped Jesus would do had come crashing down. And the result, immediately, like that. They didn't rise up. They didn't start. Like, they abandoned Jesus. They went into hiding. Judas hung himself. Peter was a whimpering baby all night. Like they all became skeptics. They were all doubters. They were all like, peace, I'm out of here, enough. And yet, something so substantial took place in their lives during the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost that it not only changed their lives, but it revolutionized their perspectives. 50 days later in the same city, Peter would stand up and preach the gospel and point to what singular event? the resurrection of Jesus for being the change that occurred. Anglican cleric John R.W. Stott, he aptly pointed to the transformation of the disciples of Jesus as being the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. Jewish historian and theologian Pincus Lapid, he added, if the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight, could change into a victorious movement of faith. 
based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then that would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection. Skeptics became proponents. That only happens, that, that paradigm shift only takes place for something to radically occur. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a skeptic, was a doubter, rejected Jesus. He didn't even show up to his crucifixion. Wanted nothing to do with him. On a couple of occasions had come, pleaded with Jesus. Like you've gone off your rocker, big bro. You need to come home. And yet, James would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He would be known as Camel Knees because of the amount of time he spent on his knees in fellowship with his brother Jesus. Can you imagine that conversation? When Jesus shows up, it's like, hey, little bro, told you right? I mean, in that moment, as any little brother would, I mean, the gang got upped, right? Like, I'm so sorry. He was so filled that he would die for Jesus. Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus, hated the church, hated everything to do with it was the chief architect of the first wave of persecution, was ripping husbands from wives and parents from children, was actively like a ravenous dog trying to destroy the church. He was on his way to Damascus to do there what he had done in Jerusalem. And yet, when he arrived into Damascus, he's a totally different person. And from that point forward, he would even change his name from Saul being big to Paul being little. And he would travel the world telling people that Jesus is alive. And why? What changed on the road to Damascus? A bright light shined, knocked him to his butt. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul would say, "Um, who is this? That's my translation. And Jesus would reply, it's I, Jesus. Why are you kicking against the goats? Apart from that, you can't explain the transformation of Saul to Paul. In his book, Contemporary Scholarship and the Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a book I'd highly recommend, William Lane Craig, he reaches this conclusion. He says these three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith all point to one unavoidable conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, because this event is of such critical importance to our faith, it can either be flatly rejected or gloriously accepted. Jesus either remains dead or he rose and is alive. There's no like zombie stage in between the two. The empty tomb is either emblematic of the greatest con ever devised 
or it's evidence of the greatest event in human history. Either you this morning are missing out on the most revolutionary occurrence to have ever taken place on this planet, or your friends are senile, or at best delusional or misguided. Like they're claiming to talk and interact with a dead person. I see dead people. Either or coming to a personal conclusion concerning this important topic is of critical importance for your beliefs either against or for the resurrection of Jesus carry with them significant and radically different implications. If Jesus rose, there's an implication. If he's dead, there's an implication. Consider, if Jesus didn't rise on the third day, he's always been dead for the last 2,000 years. The reality is that he would subsequently be nothing more than a proven liar. His claim to be God would have been utter lunacy. And today, you and I have no hope of salvation, yet alone a future resurrection. Keep in mind that when we're talking about the resurrection, as it pertained to Jesus, on three separate occasions, Jesus foretold his coming resurrection. Mark 8, verses 31 through 32, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. Then Mark 9, verse 31, he taught his disciples. Again, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They're gonna kill him, speaking of himself. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Then Mark 10, verses 33 through 34, Jesus says, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. There was no like Jesus being wishy-washy about the message, right? Over and over and over and over again, Jesus predicted what was coming, and he did this intentionally and deliberately, placing the validity of everything he said and everything he claimed to be on his physical resurrection. Following three days, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the results would have been tragic. The consequences would have been tragic. If Jesus remained dead, did not rise like he predicted. His claim to be God would have been delusional. God is now dead? That's impossible. If Jesus remained dead, everything he said would be forever questionable. If he lied about that, or he was incorrect about that, then what else is he incorrect concerning? What of the things Jesus said can we hold to be true or hold to be false if the resurrection didn't take place? If Jesus remained dead, his work on the cross would have been painfully inadequate. What we gathered on Friday to celebrate would have been meaningless and really 
not even worth our time. If Jesus remained dead, hope of life after the grave would remain implausible. It's been said, the resurrection is the proof of Jesus' triumph over sin and death. It is the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It is the basis of Christian hope. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no assurance of resurrection ourselves. Your beliefs, friend, concerning the resurrection matter a great deal. For as theologian B.B. Warfield said, Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. If he didn't rise, he's discredited. When asked for a sign, Jesus pointed to this, his resurrection, to be the sign as his single and most sufficient credential. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote something that I think is very important. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me. He wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can, you can call or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the view that he, that he was and is God. Keep in mind, there is no room for a third option concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Either he's dead and therefore completely discredited, or he's alive, and everything he came to do, everything he said, is now validated. In his book, The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, Timothy Keller, he put it this way. He says it better than I could, so I'll read it. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And while we have examined the implications if Jesus had failed to rise, consider for a moment the incredible personal implications if he had risen. If Jesus is alive today, what does that mean for you? <laughs> well, first, you can trust he is who he claimed to be. God incarnate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. It's been said the empty tomb 
as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God. If he is God, then one day you will stand before him and give an account for the life that he created you for. Jesus being God means that Allah is not God. If Jesus is God, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes except through him. If Jesus is alive, you can trust that what he said is true. You can take it to the bank. That in him alone is found salvation of sins. Restoration with God. Forgiveness. Regeneration. That once was, what was dead is now alive. That in Jesus you can find power and strength, love, joy, the peace that you so desperately want, that you can find life, and that for eternity. If Jesus rose, then John 3.16 is incredibly powerful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, if Jesus is alive, you can trust that he finished what he came to accomplish. Because of the resurrection, you can have confidence that your payment for sin was satisfied on the cross, that you were cleansed by his blood, that you today have an advocate in heaven, access to the Father, that death for you because of Jesus is not the end of your story. There is more than hope and an empty tomb there is blessed assurance. In conclusion, I'd like to point out from our text something I find to be incredible, especially if you're sitting there a bit skeptical. If you came this morning for the Easter service because it's kind of what you do, you go to church on Easter, you're not sure if you really believe that, that Jesus rose or he didn't, you've been on the fence, you're skeptical at, at best, a doubter at worst. You came here expecting kind of a rosy, feel-good, go-on-your-way kind of a moment. And then you get hit between the eyes. I can't be on the fence. This has huge implications for me. Friend, what I find awesome about this story is that this angel right? He, he comes, he appears to th this group of women, and he makes a declaration, doesn't he? A statement of fact. Your opinion doesn't matter. It is. He is risen. But then the angels don't, they, they don't leave these women to accept that reality blindly. As if, he is risen, take my word for it, now go. No. The angels say he is risen, but then there's an invitation, isn't there? An invitation that they come and see for themselves. He's risen, but don't take my word for it. Come, look for yourself, the place where he laid. But then notice what happens next. These women, they demonstrate some faith, don't they? Faith to go down into the tomb. Faith to look for themselves. 
but because they demonstrated this faith to look, the faith to consider, the faith to take the claim and then see if it's true or not. What did Jesus do? We're told that Jesus responded to their faith by then providing them the most persuasive evidence of all. He is risen. Go see for yourself. They went and looked. They come out. And then what happens? Jesus personally appeared to them. We're told, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. You need evidence? More than an empty tomb? I'll meet you. I'll meet your faith. And I'll reveal myself. And we're told, Jesus says, rejoice. And so they came and held him by the feet and worshiped. Let me say, regardless of your opinion, Jesus is risen. Jesus this morning is alive. Now, despite all of your inherent hesitations and despite all of your understandable skepticism, knowing full well the implications for you of either rejecting or believing this claim, I want to ask you, are you at least willing to come and see, to come and look for yourself. Because if you are, I'm gonna give you a promise. For I am convinced anyone willing to accept the invitation to examine the facts for themselves, the empty tomb will emerge from that quest to discover the resurrected Jesus. Jesus.